episode 449 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes the not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear, Monster Kid Radio, where we are celebrating the second week of Dan Sember 2019, where we talk about nothing but Dan Curtis and how he influenced, well, what we love here on MKR. I'm your writer-producer host, Derek M. Cook. I'd like to welcome you to the show. And this time around, we have somebody brand new in the mix, somebody that I've never spoken with before, is going to be on the show. His name is Ansel Farage. He's a filmmaker, and I don't want to tell you too much more about him here because, oh, we talk about that when I have him on the show here in a little bit. Ansel's a great guy. I had a blast chatting with him about his filmmaking career, his newest movie, and the Dan Curtis film that we're talking about this week here on the show. I'm talking about the movie Burnt Offerings. Of course, we play the classic five and we end up going off track a few times. But as I always say, that's what happens when you get a couple of monster kids talking with one another, talking about our favorite thing, monster movies. And, you know, if I wasn't careful, this conversation with Ansel probably could have gone on for a couple of hours. As it ended up this time, I was able to get it down to about an hour-ish or so, so there's a lot to dive into. Of course, we also have Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland and Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Story. The music that you're hearing is the song Hornet's Nest. It comes from the band White Cactus from their album High Tide at Meat Cove. They are a surf band based out of Trenton, New Jersey. They gave us permission to play their music here on the show. Go check them out over at whitecactus.bandcamp.com. And of course, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. So you can just click on over, check them out, pick up the album, and let them know that you heard them here on Monster Kid Radio. Before we get into the rest of the show, just some housekeeping bits. First of all, I'm actually producing this on my 46th birthday, and I want to thank everybody who has already blasted my Facebook wall with happy birthday messages. I'm touched and I'm honored to be surrounded by so many amazing people, both online and in person. I want to thank everybody for your birthday wishes, your birthday cards, your birthday gifts. I just really appreciate it. Now, it was pointed out to me yesterday December's just the month for all the cool kids to have birthdays. It's pointed out to me by Rich Chamberlain, whose birthday was on the 10th. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because I'm producing this on the 11th to go out on the 12th. And the math calendar's hard. Anyway, Rich Chamberlain's birthday was yesterday on the 10th. And the reason I bring him up is the second bit of housekeeping I'd like to get to here on the show. And that's that I am not going to be able to put together a holiday gift guide this year. It seems to be something that I do every other year, and I'm guessing this year is that non-other year where I'm not able to put the gift guide together. Just a lot going on right now, and I'm not able to put it together. However, Rich Chamberlain, over at his website, Kansas City Cinephile at kccinephile.com, has done not just one, but two posts making up a holiday gift guide for you. It focuses mostly on independent creators, and rightly so if you ask me. So go check that out. I'll make sure there are links in the show notes to those as well. I agree with all of his choices, and I suppose the only thing I would really add would be Mr. Lobo's Cinema Insomnia DVDs put out by Alpha Video, and then maybe some movies by Ansel Farage, which you're going to hear about later. And my final bit of housekeeping is just to say thank you to those of you who filled out the Monster Kid Radio listener poll this year. I didn't get very many responses, but the responses I got 
definitely something I'm going to take a look at and consider as I'm planning what 2020 and beyond will look like for Monster Kid Radio, the Monster Kid Radio on YouTube YouTube channel, the Monster Kid Writer YouTube channel, the Comic Stall Show YouTube channel, my own writing, like the Mark Temple book that I have out. Just a lot of stuff coming up. And I appreciate everybody's feedback to help me kind of narrow my focus a little bit more and put me on the right track to creating content that you guys and gals are going to enjoy. Like this interview that I had with Ansel, which we're going to get to right after this. See the top double thrill, double chill motion picture program of the year. Curse of the Werewolf in color. The harrowing story of the legendary half-man, half-wolf. His evil beast blood demanded he kill, kill, kill. Plus, the shadow of the cat. A shocking adventure into murder and psychotic fear. Two terrifying hits together. Don't miss them. This is the voice of a woman dreaming of her lover. Please, darling, me close. I love you so much. And this, a woman having a nightmare. Let me out! What are dreams? What do they mean? When you dream, you wander into another world where everything is strange and terrifying. When you dream, you too become a Nightwalker. The Nightwalker brings Robert Taylor and Barbara Stanwyck together again in the film Shocker of the Year. Yes, I do have a lover. Tell me his name. I wish to God I could, but he's only a dream. And now, a warning from producer William Castle. Our new picture, The Nightwalker, may force you to dream of things you're ashamed to admit. If you can't stand your own dreams, don't see The Nightwalker. The Nightwalker. Hi, this is Jeff Owens from the Classic Horrors Club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. We'd like to invite you to attend the next monthly meeting of the Classic Horrors Club on the Phantom Podcast Network. We think you'll enjoy our show, but don't take our word for it. Let's ask some of our listeners what they think. Excuse me, sir. What did you say after listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast? I'll never smile again. Wow, that's a little mean. How about you, sir? Would you recommend the Classic Horrors Club podcast? It would be very dangerous, not only for you, but for others. Well, we do talk about classic horror, from silent screen to Halloween and everything scary in between, but I don't think I'd call it dangerous. I think that's enough from our listeners. I've always said we have the, uh, best fans? Why don't you give us a try yourselves? We meet once a month during the Classic Horrors Club podcast on the Phantom Podcast Network, found at downrightcreepy.com or at classichorrors.club. Oh, wait, here's one more listener walking his pet. What do you think of the Classic Horrors Club podcast? There's the stink of hell on this train. Even the dog knows it. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, Welcome to Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories, created especially for Monster Kid Radio. My name is Jerry Green. 
In this segment, I'm going to tell you a story from EC Horror Comics. Today's story is Caveman. It's from the Crypt of Terror number 19, the August-September issue from 1950. It was written by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, and the art was by Johnny Craig. So sit back and relax while I tell this brutal tale. Homer Perry is an assistant curator at the Johnsonian Institute, where he creates museum displays. After two years, he has almost finished a display that will bring him fame and fortune. As his work nears completion, his boss, Mr. Yardley, comes to him and tells him to stop work. Another scientist, Professor Greer, has discovered a completely intact Neanderthal man, frozen in the ice in the Swiss Alps. Homer needs to build a display for the 200,000-year-old corpse. It will surely bring in huge crowds to the museum. Homer isn't happy about this at all and complains, but Yardley insists. Begrudgingly, Homer does as he is ordered. He works on the display, which is refrigerated to preserve the creature. And after some time, the caveman is finally delivered in a block of ice. He looks as good as new. He's a squat, muscular figure in an animal fur onesie. As Professor Greer works on freeing the Neanderthal man from the block of ice he's encased in, Homer is able to finish his own display. When the caveman is ready to be shown to the public, they arrive en masse. They're enthralled by the creature and completely ignore Homer's groundbreaking work. It isn't fair, Homer thought. Finding the caveman was a stroke of luck, not scholarship. He vows to get even. When the museum closed, Homer snuck in and moved the caveman to the roof of the museum. A few hours in the sun will surely decompose him. But when Homer returns to see the results of his handiwork, he finds that there is no decomposition at all. What could be going on? He brings the creature back down to the display so no one will notice what he did. As he wheels him down, he thought he saw the caveman's eye twitch. No, it couldn't be. And then his hand moved. It must be my nerves. And then the Neanderthal man sat up. Oh no, he's alive. He must have been in suspended animation in the ice. The caveman came at Homer with violence in his eyes. Confused by all the stuffed creatures, the thawed-out maniac destroyed the museum and hit Homer with a marble pillar. He found his way back into his display and the door shut behind him. Due to the cold temperatures, the creature got cold and began to freeze. When the museum reopened, they found Homer on the floor, dead, with the exhibits destroyed all around him. Yardley and Greer agree that the jealous Homer must have gone wild with rage and accidentally killed himself, just like a prehistoric man would. Luckily, the caveman wasn't damaged. Wouldn't it be something to see how he would have acted if he were alive? The end. I hope you enjoyed that age-old story. This story isn't what I look for when I read horror comics. I'd say this tale was horror-adjacent, at least in the way I define horror. It does, however, have a classic EC twist and moral. 
Yardley and Greer's theory about what happened is correct in many ways, but incorrect in the details. Adorably incorrect, if you ask me. Johnny Craig's art is terrific as always. The caveman looks squat and beastly, though surely very close to human. Homer had long, thin mustaches, perfect for the petty man consumed by jealousy. And Yardley is a classic, plump middle manager. It all looks terrific. If you're interested in a copy of Tales from the Crypt Volume 1, the book can be purchased on Amazon, and you can find a link to buy it on the MKR website. I hope you enjoyed the story. My name is Jerry Green, and you can find me on my podcast, The Professor Frenzy Show, where we talk about new indie comics. And on the same feed, we have Memory Minute Monday, a nostalgia podcast, and Frenzy Peace Theater, where we recap and discuss classic comic book stories. You can also catch me on Twitter at Professor Frenzy and search for Professor Frenzy on YouTube where you can find the Professor Frenzy show and some exciting projects we have coming up. Stay tuned and thanks for listening. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy show. Tonight, meet the twisted genius of Edgar Allan Poe. Experience a terrifying tale of druid witchcraft and the scream that kills. Cry of the Banshee. American International presents new heights in horror never before filmed. Vincent Price stars in this new adventure in Terror and Torture. Don't miss Cry of the Banshee. You'll learn to fear it. Rated GP. Vampires. Werewolves. Zombies. Yes, these things are real. But fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural ghoulish and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. Monster Kid Radio Hits, this is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Inspired by Dan Simber, I thought we would take a look at Night Stalker in Famous Monsters. The telefilm show was mentioned on three different occasions. The first was a one-page review in Famous Monsters 95 from January of 1973. It was a look at the first telemovie. Here is what it had to say. Man and boy. I have never seen a more vicious vampire than Barry Atwater in this petrifying portrayal of a later-day Dracula attacking his victims in the unlikely locale of the city of one-armed bandits. Not since Christopher Lee burst on the scene in his unforgettable entrance in Horror of Dracula has there been such a violent vampire, one could readily believe he had the strength of 20 men. The Night Stalker was based on the Kolchak Papers by brilliant new writer Jeff Rice a man the Count Dracula Society is proud to number among its members. 
established star writer Richard Matheson, who just picked up a Gothic Award from the same society, did an award-worthy adaption of the book for TV. Incidentally, Bantam is going to release Rice's novel in paperback, so don't miss it. The Night Stalker swept all sorts of popularity records before it. It's bound to be back for a second look, or there's even talk of it being released theatrically. It's made a star overnight of Barry Atwater, another Dracula Society member. But you might like to know this wasn't his first TV or stage role on a weird and macabre show. Nobody slept the day the world wept when Barry portrayed Abraham Lincoln in an outstanding segment of One Step Beyond. So we add our voice to the crowds who are chanting, more Rice, more Matheson, more Atwater. And Darren McGavin was pretty good too as a reporter with the inside scoop that nobody would believe. The Vampire in Vegas theme is good for a lot more stock footage. Stock, spelled S-T-A-L-K. The next mention was from FM 114 from March of 1975 in that issue's Coming Attractions article. The Night Stalker will continue to be TV's scariest walker. Vampires, werewolves, esoteric scientific phenomena, or strange occult forces are the elements dominating Kolchak's professional life. Quoting the star Darren McGavin, We're operating in the area of believable fantasy. We'd like people to think that they've just seen on the screen could or might happen. People like to be scared. He's telling us, so far so good. And Mr. McGavin has a right to his preference in motion picture entertainment when he says, I never have been a fan of horror movies. I'm too much of a realist. But he completely contradicts what it's all about when he sticks his foot in his mouth. Well, at least he demonstrates he's an acrobat and declares, so in Night Stalker we try to deal with our primal fears, the fear of darkness and the unknown. We won't show monsters because it's more scary if you don't see them. Now what kind of devil talk is that? I'm sure Block and Bradbury, and for that matter, Forey Ackerman, would be the first to agree that horror films prey upon our basic fright of what is lurking there in the night, etc. As for not showing monsters because it's more scary if you don't see them, how much scarier would Frankenstein, Dracula, King Kong, The Mummy, The Phantom of the Opera, and, in point of fact, the original Night Stalker itself have been had not the monsters been seen? Well, so far we've seen a fang vampirina and a disintegrating zombie and a couple of other creepies on the program, and everything from a female werewolf to a modern-day Medusa to a five-million-year-old amoeba fresh out of a suspended animation from the South Pole to maybe a wendigo from French-Canadian Indian folklore are scheduled for further segments. Sounds like a pretty good score of monsters to me. Don't you agree? The last mention of Night Stalker in FM was in issue 138 from October of 1977 in an article about terror television throughout the years. Here is how it described this classic Monster Hunter show. The Night Stalker, always one of my personal favorites, featured reporter Carl Kolchak, Darren McGavin, who pursued vampires, ghouls, ghosts, and all sorts of monsters and madmen. His boss, Tony Vincino, Simon Oakland, usually had to come to his rescue after Kolchak caused a disturbance and was thrown out of town or landed in jail. As with David Vincent from The Invaders, no one believed Carl Kolchak, and he was considered an eccentric newspaper man who went overboard doing his job. It didn't matter whether the police or the newspaper believed him because we, the audience, were with him on his crusades to rid the world of demons and monsters. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Darren McGavin stars as Kolchak, the Night Stalker. And now, 
Darren McGannon in The Night Stalker. Another bang-up job, Kenny. Really appreciate the famous Monsters of Filmland content that you've been providing pretty much every single week. For how long now? I've lost track, but it's awesome. I love having you as part of the show. Kenny talked a lot about the Night Stalker and the Kolchak TV show. You know what? We've never really talked about Night Stalker, Night Strangler, or the resulting Kolchak television program. There's kind of a reason for that, and I've been asked about that a lot recently, and I just want to kind of clear it up. I did have a conversation with an old friend of the show a while back about Night Stalker, but there were some technical issues on my end. It didn't save correctly. Totally my fault. And I just never really got back to this person about doing the Night Stalker again. I'd like to, and if you're listening, you know who you are, buddy. I would love to talk about night soccer with you maybe next year's Dan Simber, just saying. Also, Kenny, you mentioned the TV show The Invaders. I've never seen that. I know it's not Dan Curtis, but I've never seen The Invaders. Is it something I should check out? Listeners, let me know. Drop me a line at monsterkidradio at gmail.com and let me know if I should check out The Invaders. In the weeks to come, David Vincent's compelling search will lead him to the invaders. Given human form again. Intelligent beings from a dying planet. Their objective, conquest of our Earth. All right, you've seen the ship, now let's get out of here. Again. No! Somehow, he must convince a disbelieving world that the nightmare has already begun. You are a very foolish man, Mr. Vincent. Be sure to see The Invaders every week in color on ABC. In Paris, the mottled cobblestone streets reeked from the blood of the victims of the murders in the Rue Morgue. Whoever, whatever, the deaths were diabolically ghastly, merciless, and final. One was to be Janelle, Janelle Lafitte, a, well, the astonishing beauty of Madame Adolphe's in the Rue Morgue. Lie down. No, uh, in your robe. Close your eyes. Well, what's next? Now, open your eyes. Classic of terror, Edgar Allan Poe's Murders in the Rue Morgue. Jason Robards, breathtaking Christine Kaufman. Vivid, awesome color, Murders in the Rue Morgue. (laughs) Rated GP. It's the Scream's thrilled classic of all time. The Phantom of the Opera. Masterpiece of the macabre. In color, The Phantom of the Opera. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula. And I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited. And occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. 
I have more pressing issues to take care of. Like that pesky Van Helsing. Monster Kid Radio listeners, Dan Simber continues here, nothing but Dan Curtis here on the show. And this time around, we've got a filmmaker who's never been on the show before, but I've had a handful of his movies in my collection for a while, and I was thrilled to find out that he likes Dan Curtis. I'd like to welcome to the show, Ansel Farage. How you doing? Hey, man. Thank you for having me. This is a real treat for me because I like adding new people to the mix, new voices. I like having new guests on the show and to talk to other creatives that are inspired by the things that we love here on Monster Kid Radio. It's just a real pleasure to speak with somebody who gets it, you know? I totally understand that that feeling very well. It's nice to talk to somebody that just gets Dark Shadows and Dan Curtis and any other weird, crazy thing that's most people don't usually understand what I'm talking about if I bring up the Sentinel. So, being here is nice. <laughs> Who are you? What do you want from me? What is it that audiences find so terrifying? Go see the Sentinel. Scream for yourself. She was young. She was beautiful. She was next. The Sentinel. Now at Plaza 2, Lower Regent Street, ABC's Fulham Road in Bayswater, and across London at ABC and Leading Cinemas from Sunday. The Sentinel. Certificate X. You know, going through your filmography, I also see a very strong Lovecraft bent, and listeners of Monster Kid Radio know that I can't go two or three episodes without talking about Lovecraft in some fashion. So Excellent. I think we're going to get along. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling that our conversation is going to go in multiple directions today. <laughs> That's what happens here on the show. You get a couple of Monster Kids talking, and who knows what's going to come up. But what yeah. I do want to talk about, before we get too off track, is I want to know a little bit about you and your filmmaking career how did you get started i have always just been interested in movies when i was five years old i saw phantom of the opera the andrew lloyd Webber musical but way before when it was still scary and dark and gothic and before it had become a glittery romantic thing before the film version really changed the show so i just i was this really intense spooky experience that my parents took me to and i was like whoa what what, how how are they doing this i want to do that what is this and then that led me down to watching all the or tracking down all the the phantom of the opera films and claude rains's phantom of the opera pretty much initiated me into the world of classic horror and classic film really you know, the Universal Monster videotapes, the, the classic collection, they had that great promo on the start of the videotape. I bid you welcome. MCA Universal Home Video announces the Universal Studios Monsters Classic Collection. These are the titles monster fans have been waiting to sink their teeth into. Now, at the spectacular price of $14.98 each, suggested retail. Frankenstein. Dracula, The Wolfman, The Mummy, The Invisible Man, Creature from the Black Lagoon, The Phantom of the Opera, The Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Dracula, Son of Frankenstein, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, The Black Cat, The Raven, my five-year-old mind just can't process. What is this? this is this? I want. What's this? This is so cool. So I just delved further and further down that rabbit hole, and then Dark Shadows. My mom used to 
to tell me the, the storyline of the show as bedtime stories. Um, but I saw <laughs> House of Dark Shadows when I was six, scared the crap out of me. And that was the cementation of, okay, I want to make movies. I want to do that. That what I'm feeling right now, I want to do that to other people. So when I was six, I made that decision and I don't come from an industry family at all. And, uh, I just started teaching myself. I started checking out every single book I could at the library about filmmaking and movies and film history. And I would sit in front of Turner classic movies and absorb everything I could and just played with my, um, I got, finally got a camera camcorder and played with my monster action figures and made little movies and stuff. And, slowly ripped friends from school into being in my bigger productions, and I just kept going. And now here I am. <laughs> I'll be here later. The uh, Universal collection that you're talking about, I was working uh, as a film geek. I mean, this is the kind of job you had. I was working at a blockbuster video uh, uh-huh. when that collection came out, and I snatched them all up. I loved the cover art on those yeah, and right? that, that opening the, bit. The cover art, I don't think there was ever a videotape uh, collection that ever matched that artwork or I still, it's just gorgeous, gorgeous art. And that's what captured me at a young age is these faces and these colors. And I was hooked. Yeah. They're pretty special. And I do remember that as the collection grew, they kept adding more and more to that opening promo, different titles and that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Plus these new releases, the Spanish version of Dracula, a collector's treasure. House of Frankenstein. The Invisible Man Returns. Murders in the Rue Morgue. Werewolf of London. Tower of London. Dracula's Daughter. And the Mummy's Hand. and ask for the Universal Studios Monsters Classic Collection. Classic monster titles with a haunting new look and a price to die for. That blew my mind because I didn't really know there were that many that, movies. Like, I didn't know anything about Rondo Hatton at that point. Right, yeah. So to see things like the Brute Man turn up and they're like, what is this? So, yeah, yeah that I think that collection did a lot of good <laughs> in spreading totally the word. Did. Yeah, and then they, they expanded into like the inner sanctums and um, oh, the climax man. and all those the, the horror classics night monster is one of my favorites still that we don't have on blu-ray yet and we need that on blu-ray but yeah. right yeah <laughs> exactly i was see Ari, our conversation has gone off the rails but that's what happens <laughs> that's right it definitely does i love night monster it's a great flick it it's is. a great film man it, it, even hitchcock liked it so there you go yeah like, i where are you, Scream Factory? That's another conversation. <laughs> it really is. And, and I've talked about it here on the show. You know, Night Monster, the Ape Woman films. You yeah. Know, there's so many of these movies that don't have a proper Blu-ray release. There might be some, you know, the Vault collection or whatever. But yeah. they really deserve a little bit more attention. I mean, Night Monster's got Lugosi, for crying out loud. Give uh, us yeah. a Blu-ray. Yeah. I, I also just, I have to say... I'm probably in the minority about this, but I'm really, really happy that Horror Island is finally coming to Blu-ray. Like, I really like that film. Oh, yeah. It's an uh, undervalued gem, really. I think so many people don't know what to make of it, but it's just such a great little fun atmosphere, a little like a boy's own adventure that you would read and 
So anyway, yeah, we're, we're really getting off track. <laughs> Universal Monsters. That's what happens, man. That's what happens. But no, Horror Island, it is a solid film. I, I recommend it as well. I haven't watched it in a long time, but I have very fond memories of it. And I think that's probably what I'm going to put on when we're done recording today. Uh, just as like a <laughs> to kick back and relax and have a late lunch with a little Horror Island, a little right. Dick Foran action. Right. And it's done in 60 minutes. It's just a quick little, a quick mm-hmm. little ride. Yeah, those are yep. great films. <laughs> how would you and I have? How have we not met or chatted before? Because I have a feeling. Mm, I've been here, man. My brother, my brother, I've man. Been out since 2012. But uh, <laughs> oh well, that's fantastic. I, I love that you just decided to go out and educate yourself and not just, I mean, obviously you watch modern films and contemporary film as yeah. well, but you made a point to look at the history. And I feel like sometimes a lot of film students and, and people who want to be filmmakers, they don't necessarily look at the history. I went to film school for a couple of years myself and so many of my fellow students had no idea what I was talking about when I would bring up Universal or Hammer, yeah. or if yeah. they knew what it was, they kind of looked down at it, thought it was cheesy, something that you just laugh at on Mystery Science Theater 3000, that sort of thing. They didn't get the history. And I was always a big fan and proponent of let's look at the history because that's where it all came from. So exactly. that's great to hear that you did that. And TCM, exactly. I mean, I they play, play some real gems too. So just that self-education, that's great. Yeah, you, you cannot, I mean, in this industry, you cannot progress forward without knowing how this industry works. I mean, this is probably a story I shouldn't tell, but I'll, I'll say it. I did a few years, or I did a year really, of school. And when my screenwriting teacher had no idea what Lawrence of Arabia was, I was like, okay, there's a problem now. I'm I'm done. I don't need this. This is this is this is not good. And I feel that I agree with you completely. There's a huge, like the modern audience or t- people my age. I'm 28, so I'm fairly young. And people my age and younger, they feel that film began with Star Wars. And Star Wars, yeah, it was a landmark film, and it changed everything. But there's so much more. There was so I mean. Silent movies, they, they can't even sit through a black and white film. Um, and like I said, to, to go back to Universal Monsters, like, so Claude Rains' Phantom of the Opera got me hooked into classic film. And then I just wanted to see films that had Claude Rains in it. So that led me to Casablanca, one of the greatest movies of all time. But I'm sure most people my age today have no idea what the hell it is. And it is a real shame. And, and I think that unless people start, or, or filmmakers today that want to make movies start, going back and really looking back at these old movies and, and not just one specific genre like horror, but all the classic works that created this industry, we're going to keep movies today are not good. And I don't think they're going to get any better <laughs> unless somebody, you know, really like learns from the best, you know, mm-hmm. go watch Lawrence of Arabia and learn what David Lean is doing with, with the camera and with the actors and with storytelling itself. It all is storytelling and how you can, tell a story and captivate an audience and change them in two hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so I don't know if there's enough room on this soapbox for both of us. So maybe we should get down here. And, and <laughs> I'm very no, passionate I agree about films. So I'm sorry. It's no. Like, I, and I, I get it, man. Kindred spirit, you know, star Wars was a paradigm shift. Sure. But you know, star Wars played up so many things from the past. Lucas knew what he was doing. Kurosawa, Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, yep. all of that. Yep. You know, it, it all comes from something. And mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so Dan Curtis. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right, so you, you said your mother was telling you the storylines of Dark Shadows as bedtime stories? My mom grew up uh, is one of those kids that ran home from school to watch Dark Shadows. So she grew up with the original thing. And uh, when Catherine published her first book, Scrapbook Memories, in 1986, my mom was at Beverly Center and got an autograph by Kathleen Lee Scott and Jonathan Fritz. So this was like this thing that she would she would just show me this book and then like would tell me, yeah, and then, you know, Barnabas was in love with Josette and then Josette jumped off the hill and just like, you know, tell me the storyline of the show as bedtime stories. She was also telling me interview with the vampire <laughs> as well, <laughs> like but making it very <laughs> wow. kid-friendly. So, yeah, I mean... I don't come from an industry family, but my, and my dad would be showing me 20,000 leagues under the sea and seven toys of Sinbad and like all these. So I come from a genre appreciative family, I guess you could say. And, um, dark shadows was, I'll, I'll say this. It's, as I said, it's a bedtime story to, you know, four and five year old me. And then I see it kind of come to life in house of dark shadows. And it's just like this, intense visceral thing and then we start renting the tapes from hollywood video and then we finally got cable and i could watch it on sci-fi and it's like you're seeing this bedtime story now come to life and you're seeing all these things that okay now here's trask you know going after victoria because he's found the the um the clothes uh, you know how to do laundry in her her the the, the wardrobe tag <laughs> and he's she's a witch and it's like wow this is this thing that i've been you know, a bedtime story come to life. So I just was sucked into that world as well. And that creepy dreamlike atmosphere of Collinsport where it's always nighttime. It pretty much is, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much like rarely daytime. I, I'm a huge Dark Shadows fan. Uh, yeah, I did not come to Dark Shadows until relatively recently, actually. And I think part of it's because it was so hard to get your hands on for a long time. Uh, and then when it did come out, the video stores didn't always have the complete run. And then I mm -hmm. always wanted to start from the beginning before Barnabas when I sat down to watch it. So right. I've been going through the DVDs and I've gone through it at least once now at this point, the entire run. Yeah. And I'm watching it now on Amazon Prime, which we'll mention Prime here in a little bit. But yeah, you know, I'm just going all the way through it. And there's some really good storytelling happening in 22 minute chunks. Yeah. And some amazing creativity. Like the, yeah. the imagination of that show, everybody always focuses on Barnabas and the vampire. And yes, that, that's what saved the show. And Jonathan Frid was fantastic in his portrayal. But there are some amazing things that nobody ever talks about. Like case in point, Quentin's staircase through time. Like to me still, like how do you come up with building a staircase that will take you through time? Like just that, that's, I mean, I know obviously it can't be done in real life, but the sci-fi concepts of that and then the, the parallel reality and then, there's one part where Chris Pennock sees, they open the door and he sees himself from another storyline. And like, that's some crazy shit. <laughs> and that's daytime television. Like how amazing is that? And nobody really gets into how trippy and psychedelic that show was. And I, that's when I really like get excited about dark shadows. Everybody's always focused on Barnabas, but there's some really amazing things that they did later on in that series that I think are also underappreciated. Barnabas, obviously a big draw and, and really important and great, but you're absolutely right. There was so much more that they did even pre Barnabas before they went full on supernatural. There's some yeah. really good Gothic storytelling there. Yeah. I love Burke Devlin when it was like film noir. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, with this, 
well, now we're really going to get into a whole other conversation, but with the new proposed Dark Shadows reincarnation series, like, there's so much more that you can draw on. There's so much more malleable material mm-hmm. that you can do besides the vampire. But we'll see. I'd love to see them revisit the Phoenix stuff. Uh, yeah, I'd love to right? see that. Exactly. Hmm. Like, man, what what is up with David Collins now? David Collins is now the patriarch. And Laura Collins is his mother. Like, is there some shit going on with David? I'm sorry. Am I allowed to, to use some adult words on the show? I've heard. It, it's okay. T- typically, I, I, I don't worry about it. Don't worry okay. about it. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, um, no, it's I okay. I get very excited. <laughs> no, I, and that's the thing about Dark Shadows, and I think a lot of Dan Curtis productions and, and what he was involved with, you get really excited about it because everything that he's done that I've experienced so far, it feels like it wants to draw you in, wants to make you part of it. It's a fully realized universe, always. I would love to hang out in Collinsport. Right. That. You know, hey, you got Jack yeah. Palance over there playing Dracula. I want to hang out with him. You want to go hang yeah. out with Oliver Reed at the Burn Offerings house? Well, yeah, right. yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll do it too. I don't, whatever. You know, <laughs> you, you just want to be part of that world. It pulls you in. You definitely do. Yeah. Another underrated talent in our pantheon of filmmakers and another yeah. game changer in so many ways. But yeah. Huh? Yeah, what are we talking? Oh, yeah. So (laughs) all over the map. But again, it's Dan Sandberg, Dan Curtis. We kind of are on track here. We're kind of on track. Now, you were involved in a a book with Dan Curtis. Did you write like a a foreword or something? Three of them, actually. And it's kind of amazing to me that that's like happened. Dr. Jeff Thompson, who is the authority on Dan Curtis, did uh, the television horrors of Dan Curtis. House of Dan Curtis and Knights of Dan Curtis, and they each focus on various aspects of Dan Curtis's career. Television horrors are fairly, uh, you know, straightforward. You can understand what that's about. House of Dan Curtis, it also goes into um, his horror work and whatnot. Knights of Dan Curtis was mostly about uh, his non genre efforts, uh, Last Ride of the Dalton Gang, Winds of War, and One Remembrance. And I was very honored uh, to write the afterward for Knights of Dan Curtis back in 2015 and then Jeff asked me to do it again for television horrors and house and it's an honor and it's kind of also a challenge because he he is such a huge impactful figure on my life and I never got the chance to meet him in person but he's always been like this looming shadow you know I mean dark shadow this looming shadow over my life since childhood <laughs> with my mom telling me his television series of bedtime stories and now working with his alumni. And, and also, let me just backtrack a bit. Catherine, back in I think 97, 98, published the Dark Shadows movie book, which had the, the screenplays for House of Dark Shadows and Night of Dark Shadows. So I'm born in 91, so I'm 7 and 98 or when this book comes out, so... I find this book at Barnes and Noble. I make my parents buy it because it's Dark Shadows. Yeah. And <laughs> I learned how to write screenplays from reading that book and reading Sam Hall and Gordon Russell's format and structure. And I, that's how I taught myself how to write scripts when I was eight years old from the Dark Shadows movies. And I would watch House of Dark Shadows in correlation with the script. And be like, oh, okay, that's what this means because that's what's happening on screen. And that's what that is. And da 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 da. So Dan Curtis is kind of been this weird invisible mentor figure in my life even though i never met him but only vicariously through his work and 
I was very honored to write the afterwards to Jeff's three books and you can get them on Amazon. Yeah. I'll make sure there's links in the show notes. We, we do have sections in the website for monster kid radio that will take you to the different books that come up here on the show because as a reader and a writer myself, I love books. And if there's yeah. anything out there that's going to apply to the kind of things that we talk about here on monster kid radio, I want to make sure people can find it. So yeah, there yeah. will be links in the show notes. so You can check these books out. I've actually read two of the three. I have not read the one that's about the non horror work mm-hmm. that he did. I, I keep meaning to, I just haven't gotten to it yet. So yeah, I can definitely speak to how good these books are and how important yeah. these books are and, and clearly Thoroughly important to, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, and, like, I, <laughs> and I love that you're just referring, you know, Catherine and I did, it's like first name basis here. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know that, you know, that took me a while to even just get used to that's a whole other story just meeting them and well, well you mentioned that you worked with some alumni of, of curtis curtis's yeah. Catherine lee scott jerry lacy jerry Catherine, laura chris david selby john carlin lisa richards how did that happen and how does that make you feel every time you're on set with these people how did that happen well let me tell you what they're like now to me now it's okay a very strange extended family also, like I said, these, this thing was a bedtime story, and now I'm watching it come to life in front of me. So all of a sudden, Reverend Trask and Angelique are at your dining room table. That's a very, very weird moment. You have crossed through the looking glass, but now they're all like family. How did it happen? I was 20. I had written when I was a teenager a script inspired by the character of Dr. Mabuza, and... I had, you know, as a pipe dream, I was like, oh, it would be really cool if Jerry Lacey could play Dr. Mabusevsk, and he's got that intensity and ferocity, and he doesn't have to do much. He's just, his voice is really everything. They will know my name once more, as they knew it once long ago. And this time, they will never forget it. Permit me myself. My name is Mabuz. Dr. Mabuz. And then there was these psychic sisters in the script, and I was like, you know, Kathleen Lee Scott, Mark Parker, but this is never going to happen. You're 15 years old. Just shut up. You know, go back to homework. And then I'm 20, and I have reached a point where I'm like, all right, I'm going to just do this. I have no idea how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. And the Tim Burton Dark Shadows film was coming out, and I very mischievously was able to get a hold of Catherine's contact. <laughs> ah. And I uh, emailed her, and I, I introduced myself. And I'd already amassed an IMDb resume because I'd been making films, you know, since birth. And uh, I had worked with a very an actor he'd done everything under the sun. Lyndon Childs, um, he's a character actor. Uh, he worked with Alfred Hitchcock and he, he did everything. And so I had worked with him. So I'd had some kind of professional actor director experience. So I felt bold enough to, you know, hi, I made, I'm a filmmaker. And, uh, I wrote this script when I was a teenager. I would love for you to be in it because I'm going to make it. And, uh, it's inspired by Dr. Mabuse. Long story short, Catherine, by sheer luck decided to respond back to me 
when she really shouldn't have <laughs> and said, <laughs> okay, send me your script. And I sent it to her and she read it. And then she emailed me back. And I don't think she believed that I'd written it and um, said, okay, I'll meet with you. And then we met and I'm definitely certain that she did not believe that I'd met, that I'd written it because I'm this terrified. I just turned 20 terrified little kid. That's, you know, Oh my God, here's, here's Maggie Evans in front of me and I can't even make eye contact. I can't even deal. And she asked me all these questions and I was able to answer them. And she's like, okay. And then she's like, who do you think for, to play Dr. Mabuse? I'm like, Jerry Lacey is who I always thought. And I always pictured Laura Parker as playing your sister, Madame Carosa. And <laughs> she's like, okay, okay. And the wheels in her head are turning. She's like, all right, well, we'll, we'll talk. And then shortly after that, she agreed to it. And I then found Jerry Lacey's contact info on Facebook and I messaged him and I waited a whole month before he decided to go online and saw my message and responded to me. So I pitched him the project the same way I pitched it to Catherine and he called me. He goes, I'm interested. Send me the script. And I sent it to him and he responded to me and he goes, okay, I was expecting a 10 page short, not 120 page feature film. I need to talk to you. I'm like, okay. Oh, wow. I'll call you tonight at, at whatnot, what have you. So I'm, okay, I'm pacing the floors and I'm panic stricken. <laughs> and oh my God, Humphrey Bogart's about to call me. And he calls and it, that voice. I was going to say, that, that voice and, had to, man. <laughs> and I'm like, I just turned 20 and, you know, I have no, I'm like floundering in life. And this is now all of a sudden, you know, the Collinsport players are now starting to materialize and it's, I, <laughs> it's very strange. And so he's you know, asking me all these questions. How are you planning to shoot this movie? And what is your vision? Da, 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 da. And he says, my wife and I, his wife, Julia Duffy, by the way, uh, just to make things even more like stakes <laughs> raised higher. Uh, my wife and I were planning to go to uh, Italy for a month, but um, your script is intriguing. So convince me like that i'm like yeah <laughs> oh my so then i i rambled on about how i'm gonna make this film and i guess i convinced him and then i told him at the end of the phone call that Catherine lee scott would be playing madame von harbo he goes oh well that's fascinating i i can see that okay well let me get back to you i'm like okay and then the next day he called me and he goes i'm doing it i'm like okay crap so so you got him and to then, cancel his italian vacation yeah he canceled he wow canceled with julia's blessing their trip their month-long trip to italy to do my film and i'm 20 and i don't have a microphone by the way i don't even have a boom and we're shooting in my eight by eight garage in the summer on blue, with a gigantic blue screen cyclorama there's no mic there's no crew there's no money there's me behind a camera and and here's Jerry Lacey and Lara Parker and Kathleen Lee Scott doing this thing, this crazy thing in my garage. And I'm like pinching myself the entire time. Can't believe it's actually happening. And it was, it was really great fun. And then they came back time and time again. So that's how it happened. That's amazing. I feel like I've really made a long story into a longer one. But. No, that's, that's amazing. I love hearing stories like that. I'm friends with a couple of independent filmmakers who have similar stories where they, they've run into or managed to develop relationships with 
some of the people they grew up watching and loving. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Josh Kennedy, uh, but he does the same oh, thing yeah. with, with, the, with the Hammer actresses, you know, with Martine Beswick and Veronica Carlson. And, and I see a lot of similarities between what he did with, with the Hammer people, with what you're doing with the Dan Curtis folks, with the Dark Shadows folks. And that's, that's amazing. Congratulations. I know <laughs> now they're... Wow, they've been in how many of your movies now at this point? You've got so many folks from Dan uh, Curtis involved. I, man, that's just amazing. I don't even know, I mean, how many movies I've made myself, but they've been in quite a few. That's so <laughs> I, cool. I think with Loon Lake, it's the fifth time I've had Catherine in a film of mine. So that's just Catherine. I can't keep track of how many times I've worked with Chris Pennock or They're all like this family. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know. It's it's hard to explain. It's just, it's like they were always there because they were there, you know, as their characters. And then they're just now here. They're here. Like, David, <laughs> tell me, just call me up. Okay. Hi, David. <laughs> it's kind of strange. What's your family's reaction been to that? My mom was obviously probably more thrilled than me. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I bet. Because it's like, here's this thing that she literally, you know, I mean, when it was originally on and, and um, now here's Reverend Trask in her living room and she's making iced tea for him. And my dad, he, he knew, I mean, obviously he I've got dark shadows from my mom infecting me as a kid. And I'm, oh, no, 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 you know, dark shadows, dark shadows, dark shadows. And I love to tell this story. My dad was, is an architect. And so he's very math and, and practicality and da, 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 da. but he's always, you know, encouraged me and, per, you know, to pursue my dreams and okay, well, you want to make movies. I don't, know anybody to help you but don't do it sure why not but he always used to yell at me when i was in school because i would never do my homework i'd never i could care less about school because i was taking time out of my life making movies that's what i want to do and i'd be watching dark shadows and i'd be emailing darren gross at 10 years old about night of dark shadows and deleted footage and dark shadows and dark shadows and dark shadows and he used to say this dark shadows is never going to get you anywhere in your life so i really really like it now that i can be like hi dad so David and Catherine and I are going to Minnesota. We're going to make a movie. And, you know, and I can just throw dark shadows in his face, <laughs> which is, you know, a nice little perk. I don't know what else to add or, or to say to that other than that's fantastic. And that had to have been a real thrill. You said you lost track of how many movies you've made. But when you look at your Internet Movie Database listing, I see so many films, uh, short films, feature films. Uh, when I look at my own DVD collection, I've picked up a handful of what you have available over at uh, Alpha Video, with oldies.com. Uh-huh. Uh, I see a number of short films under your IMDb that I would love to get my hands on, which we'll talk off mic, see if I can find a way to get those. But, uh, you know, this is just, <laughs> it's, it's incredible. And everything is kind of culminating for you now, you said with Loon Lake, that's the most recent film. I want to talk about yeah. Loon Lake and I want to talk about burnt offerings. But Ansel, there's something yeah. we do here on the show with everybody that comes on. We have a game that we play. It's called the Classic Five. And what it is, is I've got a deck of cards here. Uh, there are probably okay. about 250 cards here. Each one of these cards has a this or that, which movie do you prefer style question. They're all about classic monster movies. There are no wrong answers. I'm going to draw five cards and... Uh, see what you have to say what do you think i'm like geeking out on the other end of the phone already <laughs> all right here we go all right card number one right off the top what is your favorite lon cheney jr film oh the answer really should be the wolfman but i'm gonna say oh, frankenstein meets the wolfman really frankenstein meets the wolfman hands down roy william nell directed the hell out of that film but he doesn't understand there's a curse upon me i change into a wolf 
So my father become obsessed by his power. He died a horrible death. There's no need for us all to storm after her. She'll come in if I ask her. Why should we treat her so fancy? She's a Frankenstein. Yeah. Fair enough. I, that's one of my absolute yeah. favorites. So, you know, I'm not going to argue. Mean, yeah. Runner up would be Son of Dracula. And I know that that's also an unusual choice, but I think that that's a great film. And I think that Lon does a really good animalistic job in that role as Count Alucard who is still the son of Dracula, by the way. I want to put that rumor <laughs> to rest. He is the son of Dracula. I read Tom Weaver's script. His name was Anthony Alucard. <laughs> <laughs> son of Dracula is does not get enough attention or respect. I love that film. And uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. I've said this a lot recently because the movie keeps coming up in conversations around me. Go figure. Uh, but that film has the absolute best resurrection scene I've ever seen. Uh-huh. When he comes uh-huh. back in the yeah. crypt, that's amazing. And it's all subtle. It's just the, the music and then his hand. and mm-hmm. the, Yeah, it's great filmmaking. All right, card number two. What character from a classic monster movie would you want to have as an action figure? Claude Rains' Phantom of the Opera, because they never made one, and I always wanted Sideshow Toy to make one when they did that line of action figures in the 90s that was the best action figure line that I have them all. Werewolf of London is my favorite one, but they never did Claude Rains' Phantom or the Mad Ghoul, or Dracula's Daughter, or Halsumar Polzik, for that matter. But, sorry, Claude Rins fan. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't play this game with me, man. This is just, you know. <laughs> hey, when I pull this out at different monster movie conventions, it goes all night. We do a lot more than five cards. So, <laughs> it's all good, man. It's all good. You're giving me content for the show. All right, card number three. What's your favorite William Castle film? House on Haunted Hill. This is Vincent Price. I've been involved in many blood-chilling films like The House of Wax and The Fly, but never have I played in a more terrifying shocker than my new picture, The House on Haunted Hill. It's a story guaranteed to make you shudder with fright. See The House on Haunted Hill, if you dare. Yeah, House on Haunted Hill, yeah. that's. I mean, that. I, ha- I always have to watch that and John Carpenter's Halloween every Halloween night. If not Halloween, unless House on Haunted Hill. Yeah. All right, card number four. What's your favorite man in ape suit or man in gorilla suit movie? Oh, my mind ran first to Bela Lugosi's Murders in the Remorgue. Okay. But then I don't know if this will count because it's not quite a full-on ape movie. Then I started thinking about Gordon Hessler's Murders in the Remorgue, which kind of had the ape, Eric the Ape at the beginning when in Jason Robards' theater, but then goes off in a totally different direction. You know what? No, so we'll disregard that. Bela Lugosi's Murders in the Remorgue. Well, they're both good. I, I, I have a yeah. preference. I, I go toward Bela more than uh, the other, but no, that fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a great film. I love everything about that movie except for when they do the close-up of the ape. Because then they cut to a real animal as opposed yeah. to, yeah, which is like, right. come on, guys. So close, yeah. so close. I would love, by the way, I know that it's floating around somewhere in the classic horror film board that those guys have a copy. That recut version that followed the original pre release cut before they rearranged the scenes, and someone had snipped out those the shots of the chimp and put in other shots of Charles Gamora's ape costume from other monogram films. Oh, wow. I would love to watch that. If somebody's got a copy on that, on it wants to like send it to me. I want to, you know. Yeah, just uh, me too. <laughs> me, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, I read about it on the classic horror film board. I know those guys have it. 
<laughs> well, maybe after I'm done watching Horror Island this afternoon, I'll go online and try to find it myself. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Final card. And this one sometimes stumps people because it's a little bit more of a deep cut. This actually comes from the Universal uh, Expansion deck for the Classic Five. You mentioned it earlier, so I, I, I feel we can probably get away with it. Cut is good with me, man. Cut <laughs> is good with me. What is your favorite Lon Chaney Jr. Inner Sanctum film? Weird Woman. Yes. Six stones, jungle gods. You don't know what you're doing. I do. Domino. Woman or witch, temptress or killer, weaving a death curse with the black magic of an ancient cult. Starring Lon Chaney, Anne Gwynn, Evelyn Anchors, with Lois Collier, Ralph Morgan, Elizabeth Risden, Elizabeth Russell. This house is full of something evil. Evil? Yes, it's you. I don't. And I'm glad that you that I didn't say that to start with because that would have been choice number three after Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and Son of Dracula. Weird Woman, hands down. That was the first one I ever saw. And also the floating head in the jar at the beginning when I was five, that freaked me out too. I was like, oh my God, what's that? You know, can't get enough. This <laughs> is the inner sanctum. We need these on Blu-ray, by the way. We really do. I was fortunate enough, and I don't know if it's still available on DVD or not, if it's out of print, but when it, I picked up the set, it was like $6. Yeah, it was super yeah, cheap. Yeah, out of print. Which yeah. is too bad. It, it's a series that deserves some more attention. It's Lon Chaney Jr. playing kind of sort of a romantic lead, which is something he always wanted to do. And right. they're, they're all really good, but Weird Woman uh, is great. I love Dead Man's Eyes as well. That's another favorite of mine. Pillar of Death is the one with the seance, right? Where they, with the old, It's like an old dark house, murder mystery, and the fam. I, I want to say that's Pillar of Death. I believe so. Yeah, and, and that's the one we're launching. Yes, I like that. Those those two are my favorites. I also, I, Frozen Ghost, because Frozen Ghost was the second half of the Weird Woman tape. But it's such a weird film that I still don't know what's about. And I've seen it <laughs> numerous times since I was five years old. Anyway, yes, Weird Woman is my favorite Anna Sanctum. And I also love Burn Witch Burn, the AIP remake or reimagining of Fritz Lieber's book. Which is another solid film, which I don't think I've talked yeah. about here on the show in the past or talked about enough. Well, have me on and I'll talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that <laughs> film a lot, too. The first time I saw Burn Witch Burn was at the Lovecraft Film Festival here in Portland years ago on the big screen. It was pretty amazing to see it that way for the first time. Nice. And now it's available on nice. Blu-ray. So yeah, it's a wonderful film. Well, that was the classic five, man. How do you feel? I could go for another round. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe next time I have you on. Next time I have you on, we'll do some right. more. Yeah, there are plenty of cards. <laughs> but this time that I've got you on, we have two movies we want to talk about. Uh, let's okay. talk a little bit about Burnt Offerings first, and then I want to go out okay. on on the new film. So Burnt Offerings is uh, a movie from Dan Curtis, and it was a theatrical release, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It all begins as a summer vacation. A young family finds a beautiful old house. It could be the answer to their dreams. So you are the people who want to rent this house. Well, you mean it's $900 and then it's all ours? Or the beginning of a nightmare. <laughs> Burnt Offerings, starring Karen Black. Are you actually trying to tell me that this house is responsible? Oliver Reed. This house is destroying us. Oh, God! Betty Davis. This house is getting so cold. Burgess Meredith. This house will be here long, long after you have departed, you believe me? Eileen Heckert. When it comes alive, tell them what it's like. Burnt Offerings. 
from United Artists. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Came out in 1976, starring a couple of mainstays of 60s and 70s horror. Oliver Reed, Karen Black, and you even got Betty Davis thrown into the mix, which is just amazing. And from what I understand, she really wasn't into doing a lot of horror work at that time, but she was able to get her in anyway. Yeah, it's work. It's still a job. Yeah. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, <laughs> I covered the movie Trog with uh, Frank Dietz. So we had some Joan, Crawford. some Joan Crawford, and now we're following up with some Betty Davis, keeping the feud alive, I guess, here on Monster Kid Radio. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Burn Offerings is kind of a haunted house film, basically. I was watching it this morning. My wife came in. She was into the living room getting ready to go to work. She asked what I was watching. She was like, oh, it's Burnt Offerings. Well, what is that? Well, it's a haunted house movie. And then she was transfixed. She came in on the scene where Oliver Reed's trying to drown his kid. Yeah. And she just had no idea what it was and was just fascinated by it. She couldn't sit around and watch the rest of it with me because she had to go to work. But, you know, maybe we'll watch it together at some point down the line because I'm sure I'm going to revisit this film. This is something that I've watched before. It was great to revisit it. It's a great slow burn. Yeah. (laughs) No pun intended. Uh, Do you remember the last... (laughs) You remember how you first saw it? Did you see it theatric? Well, I I mean, you're kind of young. Well, no, I definitely didn't see it theatrically unless I was, you know, unless this is a reincarnation. Yeah, I was going to say. (laughs) You know, I I mean, I am. I I do like old stuff, so you never know. Um, I saw it on videotape, I want to say, when in like the mid-2000s. And I saw it was also, it was like perfect because it was in the middle of summer and I got the tape at Amoeba Records in Hollywood. It was used and I would watch it and I would just like rewatch it and rewatch it and rewatch it. And then like, I remember I'd like go swimming and then I'd come home and like, I'd watch it again. <laughs> and then like, it was just my summer movie and it's a great summer horror film. And, um, okay, wait, 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 you're watching it during the summertime, which is great. But then you'd go swimming and then come back and watch it again, knowing know, what right? happens. Like just to make just to make make it make it you know more <laughs> more disturbing. Pretend that all yeah. <laughs> I'm a very weird kid, you know, as you can imagine. You listen to however many minutes of this interview we've already done. Um, so yeah, it's just and then then I think right after that the the DVD finally came out and it had the commentary track with Karen Black and and William Nolan and Dan. And, and listening to that and then listening to sort of Dan's thought process on the film was very inspiring for me when I was 12 or 13, whenever that was. What creeps me about, if I'm, I'm going to jump ahead, I'm sorry. That's okay. What no, creeps that's me fine. out about that film is the horror of your parents turning on you as a kid. Because you brought up the scene where Oliver Reed is trying to, to drown Lee Montgomery. That scene and then when the plants, when the plants come alive... And Oliver Reed is just trying to get away and they're wrapping around him and then and Lee Montgomery's screaming in the car and Karen Black comes and drives and she's got that evil look in her eye and you just know like he can't trust anybody. Like his the possession of his parents, that to me is the scariest thing of the film. More so than the chauffeur, <laughs> I think. The chauffeur was a nice creepy touch. And it comes from Dan's own personal horror, which is probably why it's so memorable. Oh yeah? Because it comes from when and he says this on the commentary track of when his Dan Curtis's mother died when he was 10 and he remembers being at the funeral and looking over and seeing this chauffeur laughing and it just infuriated him and bothered him that somebody would be laughing at something so obviously devastating and horrific to this 10 year old version of Dan Curtis and it stuck with him and that's where the whole idea of the chauffeur comes from and 
I think that's why it's such a potent and still recognizable image. I mean, you still see him on Instagram, you'll be scrolling through Instagram and there's Anthony James in the car grinning. And yeah, it becomes, because it comes from true personal horror. I think that's why that image is still strong. Hmm. But yeah. I have to admit, I have not listened to the commentary track on burnt offerings. I want to, and I wanted to before this recording. I just didn't have time to do so. I read some critiques online, some criticisms online that this film feels too much like a TV movie, which is why I wanted to establish earlier that it was a theatrical release. Mm-hmm. And I can see that a little bit. Everything is very well lit, feels like yeah. something shot for TV, but I almost think that adds to the horror of what's happening here. Right. I do too. It's so normal. And it's like Eileen Atkins' wardrobe. The Allardyce family. I, I also have to think, I have never read the, the novel, but I showed one these days. Yeah, you and me both. Yeah. The way that they're presented is just being so normal. And she's so willing to, oh, yeah, let's go to the kitchen and help clean your cuts and bruises on the kid. And that slow burn, everything is just very static. And yeah, that TV movie feel, which is very contradictory when you think of Dan Curtis's theatrical filmmaking in the Two Dark Shadows features. That static feel of something bad is going to happen. We're just going to make you wait for that shoe to drop. Mm -hmm. But when it does, we're going to like you know, slam bang it. Like that's when the chauffeur arrives for Betty Davis and he does that human and then they react and, and Anthony James slams that coffin right into the camera and he pushes the camera into it just like, you know, really forcing us into the horror and then makes you wait and just wait and wait and quiet and wait. It definitely does not play for today's audiences where everything needs to happen immediately before the, even the, the logos have begun. Right. But I think that that's the magic trick of burnt offerings you're waiting you're waiting you're waiting you're waiting for the horror the horror is happening from the start karen black is already possessed from the start when she reacts oh my god that's the house it's such a waste oh my god such a waste what they've done until we come to the finale upstairs and i guess we can talk about spoilers on this yeah yeah, are, <laughs> yeah we, we yeah. do we do have yeah. spoilers in here yeah the finale which again doing a little bit of research Apparently the novel's a little bit more open-ended and Curtis mm-hmm. didn't like that. He wanted to make sure there was kind of sort of a definitive ending or at least put a little bit more of a cap on it. And uh, I thought... slam bang Hollywood. And I thought it worked. Or climax. I mean, having not read the novel, I can't say, but I thought it worked. Oh yeah. I think so too. I mean, it, it finally, after the slow burn tension, you do need the pressure cooker to explode. Mm-hmm. And from what I've read of like summaries of the novel... I guess the boy just drowns in the pool when he goes back and swimming and stuff. And, and Oliver Reed's character is unable to save him and sort of dies of a broken heart, trying to save the boy. And Karen, the mom realizes what's going on and goes upstairs and accepts her fate. And then it's just sort of the end. Hmm. So you, you, you can't just let it be flate like that. And also we got to acknowledge Dan Curtis read this book in like 68, 69, 70, right at that peak of Dark Shadows. Right. And so the influence on this book and on Night of Dark Shadows and on the slow possession of a house possessing Quentin and in the ending as well, it's the same ending. It's a dress rehearsal for uh, Burn Offerings, Night of Dark Shadows is. Um, and Dan Curtis always hated that acknowledgement. But it is. He's read this book and he's captivated by this book and wants to do this book somehow, but can't get the rights to it because it's tied up at Fox. 
So he does his own thing with it in Night of Dark Shadows. And then the rights work itself around and he takes the film over from ironically Bob Fosse <laughs> and does burnt offerings himself. As you can see, I just am a fountain of useless information. No, it's, that's, again, that's, you know, as monster kids, there, there's no end to uh, the, the amount of, <laughs> of, of classic horror and, and suspense uh, genre cinema that we pour into ourselves. There's never ending. There, there's no bottom to the bucket you know of all this stuff there's just so much there and i totally see that there are some similarities here kind of like you said a dress rehearsal it makes perfect sense one of the things that really struck me about burnt offerings was the performances but specifically Mm -hmm. oliver reed's now oliver reed i think everybody kind of knows the stories and most of them were probably true. Uh, the, the guy... The best of them. Yeah. I mean, he was a hard drinker, man. He, he loved life to the fullest. and Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's probably... I, yeah. I just read I just read this book called Hellraisers, which is Hellraisers, The Life and Inebriated Times of Richard Burton, Richard Harris, Oliver Reed, and Peter O'Toole. Okay. And so the crazy story is about Oliver Reed and all the... Yeah. It's... it's those guys lived... And I love Oliver. I mean, all four of those great, fantastic performers. But Oliver Reed, even when I was a kid, like probably because of watching Curse of the World, I was always like, if I was an actor, and Gladiator as well. If I was sure. an actor, I'd want to be like Oliver Reed, you know, like that brooding, big. You don't want to mess with him, but he can also be, you know, really funny and really tender when he wants to be, but he can be a scary brute at the same time. And the nuances that he does bring to the... Also, you know, him and Betty Davis hated each other making burnt offerings. That's what and I hear. you would yeah. never know. Mm-hmm. You would never know from the way that they interact. And like just that one part when they're walking through the house and he slaps her on the butt and they're laughing hysterically and cackling. And that's acting. That's real acting. When you've got two people that can't stand each other that make you can believe that they actually have a great rapport and they care and they enjoy being around each other. I've seen that happen. That's some damn good acting. Yeah. Um, she keeps referring to him as Benji. His name's Ben or Benjamin, but oh, Benji is Benji. Okay. Just yeah. very loving and clear that this character really cares about this other character. Whereas yeah. and vice versa. when the cameras were off, she only referred to him as yeah. that man, you know, just yeah. not a big fan. Yeah. I also heard or read that she was also not a big fan of Karen black that, she felt that Karen Black did not give her the respect that she deserved. Yeah, Karen Black goes into that a bit on the commentary. And I don't know if it's... I mean, once again, here we are, how many years later, third-hand knowledge and stuff. But right. from what Karen Black said, she was so caught up and enamored of Betty Davis's training and, and technique that sometimes she would like forget and be like watching her rather than responding and reacting and, and giving her a performance to bounce off of and play the scene. Hmm. So that probably, and I could see where that would annoy, you know, someone like Betty Davis where she comes from the original when Hollywood began studio system. This is how you get the job done and I'm here to get it done. And yeah, you know, why are we not getting the job done? I could see both sides of that coin, but at the same time, look at their performances you get in that first third of the film that, they do like each other. They do. She does care about Aunt Elizabeth. But then, you know, midway through, when she's attacking her of, for closing the window, when the gas fills up Lee Montgomery's room and, yep. and Betty Davis is starting to lose it, like, you feel that power dynamic has shifted. That Karen Black really could stamp out Betty Davis. And I don't think that Betty Davis would let anybody stamp her out. So. Right. 
fantastic acting. That's and, another and, scene too that is really I mean, it's just riveting. There's so many powerful character scenes and that and I mean that's what that film is that slow burn mm-hmm. watches these people fall apart. And that's the like I said, the real horror of that is is the, the, the dehumanization of this family. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's way more interesting material to get into at filmmaking wise and storytelling wise, rather than, you know, here's another jump scare. Here's another jump scare. Here's another, you know, all those are certainly those films. And, and they have their that, place, that are, but yeah. Oh, definitely. I made one just so I shouldn't really, you know, insult it, but, but yeah, but burn offerings with that, that slow. And it was the seventies. You could do those kinds of things where like, here's another, I'm sorry, I'm going to go off talking. I love this movie. The other from 1972, Tom Tryon, the adaptation, Tom Tryon's novel. I love that film. And it's a slow burn summer. Idyllic family goes to hell, but we're going to take our time and we're going to just really watch as everything just unravels and everyone is dehumanized. And I, I love those kinds of screwed up portrait story. (laughs) You know, I don't, I don't think I've seen that one. I'll, I'll add that to the list. You need to go out and see the other. Do not read anything about it. It's a great film with several twists, an amazing performance by Uta Hagen in one of her few future film performances. Uh, Amazing. Robert Mulligan, who directed the uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, directed this. And it's sort of the wicked steps on another 1930s depression era tale of childhood, but a very messed up childhood in contrast <laughs> to kill a mockingbird and a great great underrated film okay i'll, I'll definitely yeah. add it to the list uh not that i don't have a thousand other movies to watch as well but i'll, 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 I'll put it on the list and i'll put it near the top <laughs> and when i do watch it i'll let you know i'll get back to you and let you know what i thought okay yeah the the scene that we were talking about there with the confrontation between karen black and betty davis did you lock the window did you lock the door you know all of that yeah. there's this complete roller coaster of emotions happening here but maybe that's not really the best way to put it because it does have that slow burn feel. So, you know, it's less roller coaster and more haunted house feel, I suppose, which technically the movie is. But I don't even know where I'm going with that analogy. Bottom line is, it's amazing uh, because yes. it starts as uh, they're both confused about what happened, both trying to figure it out. Betty Davis has one slip and then starts going down this path of, well, maybe I did. Oh, I didn't do it. I didn't. And Karen goes on the yeah. attack. I had just recently watched uh, 1965's The Nanny. And. Uh-huh. Betty Davis is amazing in that as well. And she oh, yeah. has this, oh, yeah. this this great, caring, straight character that she's playing. That, you know, nothing yeah. hinky's going on. And then you get to that last third of the film that and you realize, third. like, oh, yeah. whoa. <laughs> and I feel and like for, a lot of For that, a really long time, you're totally convinced that the yeah. kid is evil. Yeah. And and she's just trying. She's just trying. I, I mean, but that's what, mm-hmm. I, I mean, Betty Davis was, she was a master of her craft. Sure, sure. That's uh, also I gotta say as we're talking about Betty Davis Hammer at the anniversary. I love that film. Mm-hmm. I think that that's one of her funniest performances. Just like so wicked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so droll. Yeah, and we need those on Blu-ray as well. By the way, <laughs> but um, to go back to burnt offerings. Yeah, to go back to burnt offerings. I could talk about the nanny quite a bit, uh, and and, uh, and and Betty Davis. I'm I'm just now getting into the depth of her filmography. I, I've never really been overly aware of everything that she and Joan Crawford did, but after reading uh, the book, the feud was based on oh, was it the Divine Feud? Yeah, either way, and and watching yeah, that series, I'm totally trying to learn more and watch more of her work. 
But yeah, I mean, she's fantastic in burnt offerings. She really does deliver. We said earlier, it's a job, it pays, but it feels like it's so much more to her, just like everybody else in the film. She is a professional, and look at Joan Crawford in Trog. She's clearly doing slum work, but she's still going to give her best and try to make this the best new effort that she can. So why would Betty Davis not want to do the same thing with you know her product? Sure. Here's a story that when Dan met Betty Davis, that he was really scared because he's like, here's Betty Davis, you know? And she said, we all want to be directed. And he said, she's telling me something here, clearly. And that sort of gave him this thing of, I don't need to be afraid to, to here's, you know, a legend of film, a legend of this, a titan of this industry, to tell her, to talk to her and correct her and tell her what I want, because she would still be fully willing to give it her all. I mean, I was, I was watching it this morning as well, and I'm looking at when... She's writhing around on the bed. You're hearing Anthony James drag the coffin up the staircase. Mm-hmm. And Oliver Reed is freaking out in the corner. And I'm looking at her. And at the same time, I'm like, I'm, I'm doing something terrible. I'm on my phone at the same time. I'm looking at the Criterion Collection. And here's photos of her in Now Voyager. And I'm like, look at that's the same woman. This, this incredible, mm-hmm. you know, glamorous in her own way. But a very classy, elegant titan of film. And here she is, I hesitate to use this word, but no other word comes to mind, reduced to lying on a bed, writing around, making groaning noises and stuff, looking very bad. Obviously, she's supposed to look terrible. She's dying within the film, but and she's giving it her all. And she would continue to go on and, and do more and more and more and not really care because I'm working. It's a job. Yeah. And if, yeah, as you mentioned, you watched a few, we, we saw how they were treated as actors and and I know that feeling very well. If you want anything done, you got to go out and do it yourself. They, gotta, they had to go out and make a horror film to make themselves relevant again. That's what it takes. And that was a great show, by the way. I read that history of, of the two of, of Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, and I always wanted to, to make that into a movie. So I was really thankful when Ryan Murphy did it as that miniseries. That was a fantastic show. Yeah. I'm sorry I'm going off track again. No, it's like, all right, man. No, I, I agree with you 100%. And it's so cool that they actually showed some of the production of Trog in that. I mean, so we got to see Trog in this. It was just wonderful. Trog got more attention and more respect than it ever got before. This is the end. (laughs) It was was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, It was a great show. Yeah. That was very cool. Uh, The writing of Burnt Offerings. Dan Curtis obviously was involved, but William F. Nolan, another genre legend. Mm-hmm. you know, came on board and co-wrote, which he co-wrote a lot of Dan Curtis, where he worked with Dan Curtis a few times. And oh, yeah. I've met William F. Nolan uh, before and, and have actually interviewed him on a previous podcast years ago when I was doing something else. But at that point, yeah. I wasn't really into the Dan Curtis thing, so I failed to ask him anything about it. Uh, <laughs> I wish I had, <laughs> you know, because... Uh. Clearly, he enjoyed working with Dan Curtis. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it more than once. His, I think his contribution to classic horror, especially in the 70s, cannot be understated. Yes. Horror and sci-fi. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, his adaptation, I think, for Turn of the Screw for Dan. Uh, that was the first, I saw that before I saw The Innocence. Hmm. I was like, okay, The Innocence. Uh, very ignorant of me to say, but at the time I was ignorant and young. The Innocence has to really top Dan Curtis's version because that's the best version of Turn of the Screw. So Jack Clayton, <laughs> you got your work cut out for you, but Jack's 
definitely delivered. But yeah, William Nolan adapted the first half. From what I've learned through the commentary, was that Dan split the book down. Uh, he would take the last half because he knew how he wanted to end it. And so William Nolan adapted the first half of the novel. And then they just sort of stitched the script together. Okay. But yeah, they, they had a, a very good collaborate. And I think it's because Nolan respected Dan's sort of heart-driven. He knew he had the vision. He knew what he wanted and he knew how he would get it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why most people really like wanted to work with Dan and, and why he was able to get the caliber of talent both in front of and behind the camera on all of his productions, you know, especially when you come to Winds of War and War and Remembrance. And oh, yeah. Uh, everybody was in that, so. I think the first time I was ever exposed to William F. Nolan was not through any of the film work, not through any of his novels. It was from a book called How to Write Horror Fiction, published in 1991 <laughs> by Writer's Digest Books. And, yeah, I mean, it just kind of changed how I thought about writing and, and horror and what you can do and what you can get away with not showing to be more effective. Right. And there's a right. lot of burnt offerings that you're not atmosphere. seeing. Yeah. It's a little atmosphere. You're not seeing yeah. a lot, but when you Mrs. do start, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But when you do start finally you seeing only use the light. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, just the look of look at Karen black, looking up at the house and seeing that light is on in the bedroom Yep. and that can give you chills. That's all it takes. But it's all that, early tension that he set up the careful foundation of the script that he's done mm-hmm. as uh, the plant is dead. No, the plant isn't dead because now the kid is in all those little minor details that nobody is paying any attention to that unlock the secret of the film, mm-hmm. which I love to do. And I try to do to the best of my abilities in my own work of, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen right in the first scene. And hopefully, and, it's up to you if you're paying attention or not, you'll, you'll know where we're going or not. You'll just find out as we go, but that careful layer, careful detailing in your, in your foundation and stuff. And that's with William Nolan building, building, building mm-hmm. an atmosphere, building the tension and dread of something lurking in the, yeah. That's what makes us come back to these things. I mean, that's what gives these re- rewatchability because you are layering all these things in here. And when you realize, oh, wait a minute, that was all set up. We just weren't paying attention. Darn, we've got to go back and rewatch the movie again. You know, it, it really kind of gives you that, <laughs> that. It sticks with you a lot longer. And there's oh, yeah. so much atmosphere in this film. But when things finally do start happening and when Ben Oliver Reed's character does see the house starting to rejuvenate. Come to life. Yeah that the boards are changing yeah uh, i actually was watching it and rewound a little bit because i wanted to watch that scene again <laughs> just to see <laughs> i mean it was cool to see the house boards change but to see oliver reed's reaction to it that yeah. was that was precious of yeah yeah that, that was dan great curtis. yeah that's that's dan curtis when he finally that's that's the house of dark shadows thing kicks in when it goes he's going to be relentless and he's gonna just overwhelm you and that sense of overwhelming horror, oh my God, this thing, this house is alive. It's doing something. It's, and we are prisoners here. And uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's one of the scary scenes, as I said earlier, of when they're just trying to escape and the, everything is, the house is literally reaching out and clawing them back in and the storm and all that stuff. It's just, that's Dan Curtis, yep. <laughs> you know, just pounding away at the audience. Yeah. You know, are you scared yet? <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I think listeners can tell at this point, 
you and I both recommend this film quite a bit. If you haven't seen it, you've got to see it. It is hands down one of my favorite movies that I've watched this year for the show. Uh, it, yeah. It's right up there when it comes can, to. Can we also talk yeah. about for a second Bob Covert's music in that film? That that uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you, you know what I'm talking about the the theme the. The music box scene. There we go. I'm yes. To say. So I'm laughing because I'm also a film score collector and aficionado, and it's <laughs> kind of become a thing where on the show, not more than 20 minutes goes by before I start mentioning film music. And I've been intentionally trying to pull that back because I know not everybody's as deep into it as I am. I mean, it's fascinating and all, but I can really geek out about that. You know, speaking of going off topic. Yeah. Well, you've talked to the right guy. I, it wasn't me this time. <laughs> Ansel brought Sorry. it up. <laughs> no, no, we're going there. No, the score is great. No, that's another thing of, of Bob Covert and Dan Curtis of how, like, I'm going to use House of Dark Shadows again because that was my first excursion into this everything. Mm-hmm. When Carolyn Stoddard has become a vampire and they're going to go stake her and Bob Covert's music is just dun, 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 very calmly droning away in the background as the horror is escalating and escalating and escalating, just getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until finally they're ready to stake her. And then the music just goes absolutely shit. He does that same thing and all hell is breaking. And just that lovely music box theme is ticking away in the background and everything is going to hell. And that means just like, I think it makes it, worse and more aggravating and, and overwhelming because it's like the music is mocking you and mocking the characters and like and i love that <laughs> just like oh yeah feeling that but that's covert he's, he's a genius in his own way and he's still kicking away at i think he's 94 95 yeah and he's sharp super sharp i met him a couple times and he's yeah ridiculously sharp really cool guy Right on. Yeah, and no, I love his work. Uh, I love the Dark Shadows box set that came out a little while back, the four CD set that I know gets a little bit of grief because a lot of it's just the same thing over and over and over again, just <laughs> different lengths. But, you know, I can pop that in and listen to that for hours and it doesn't, it doesn't bother me at all. I have a story about that. To really, really go off trap and not divulge too much, Night of Dark Shadows, as I think most people that are listening to your show no, MGM cut 41 minutes out of the film and footage was rediscovered in 99 by Darren Gross. And there's been this on again, off again restoration for the film. And Darren Gross and I have been working on it. The restoration is still alive, but it's not happening tomorrow. You're not going to see it tomorrow, but it's still alive. But we've been working on the music for that. And so there's, there's a track and Bob Cobert just named it Dan's favorite track. <laughs> because it's like this one track that Dan like always like, okay we're gonna put that track in there and it's like that one track that you've always heard on every single Dan Curtis production when stuff starts to get weird and creepy you've heard that music like this one <laughs> piece of music and it's named Dan's favorite track so I just wanted to add that to the, the story. <laughs> <laughs> I could listen to this music all day. I mean, I, I adore it. Like I said, I'm a huge film score guy. I listen to film scores all the time. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. It's it's my go-to. Yeah, it's our modern-day classical It music. really is. John Williams is our new Mozart. Yeah, I mean, you got John Williams stuff. You got Danny Elfman's work. You've got Ramin Jawadi. Hans Zimmer, uh, yeah. Hans Zimmer. And, and you start going to the more classic stuff, man, especially the 70s. Jerry Goldsmith. Oh, man. Hey, I told you to watch the movie The Other. Jerry Goldsmith's score in that Oh, he did the score in it? It's amazing. Oh, my God. It's amazing. Okay. It's so beautifully sad. Okay. 
It's childhood sadness. It's brilliant. Oh my God. I love this movie. Okay. All right. All right. right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So (laughs) highly recommend people track down this movie and watch it. You have to see it. And when you're done watching it, hop on over to Amazon prime to watch the latest film from Ansel himself. Loon Lake uh, came out this year. Yeah. Yeah. It was recently released to Amazon prime. People can check it out now. Kind friend. Beware as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I, as I am now, so you must be. Prepare yourself to follow me. Son, what's bugging you? I've seen that look you have in your eyes before. It's never a good thing. God's will. He's testing us. You believe this is a test? I must believe it. Fear does crazy things. Again, we've got some Dan Curtis connections in it. Definitely. (laughs) Who's in it from the Dan Curtis catalog? David Selby is Mm -hmm. in a dual role. And Catherine Lee Scott also shows up. And in, in addition to that, it's just very sort of, whether subconsciously or consciously, it's in that mold of Dan Curtis, Dark Shadows, Haunted Past mm-hmm. genre. There, uh, there's plenty I could talk about it, but I don't know where I should start. So maybe you should ask me a question. <laughs> well, the thing is, is I, I don't want to spoil this one. Now, granted, Bird okay. Offerings came out years ago and... Spoiler alert, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but this is a new movie, and I really want to push people to, or direct people to watch it, because I've watched it. And full disclosure, listeners, Anzel provided me with a screener copy, so I did watch the movie. I really enjoyed it. I did pick up on some Night of Dark Shadow-isms, some Dan Curtis-isms in there. There's a lot of that in there, and I really enjoyed that. I also found it to be just an affecting, spooky movie. I mean, it really kind of has this this spell that it casts over you, which I (laughs) use that word intentionally because of some of the subject matter of the film. Yeah. (laughs) You know, uh, I I really enjoyed it. Hell, this is a feature-length film. Now, this is not the first feature you did, correct? No, definitely not. Definitely not the first feature. There's a lot of short films in your filmography. That's why I ask. But I could say it's the first sort of really big feature. I mean, as as I discussed earlier, making like the Mabuse films we were in my garage which is eight by eight with a blue screen and a crew of me without a microphone at least on the first one and no money and nothing and this there was still no money it was still fully entirely self-financed by myself and my two producers who are also the two leads nathan wilson who is from minnesota and kelly kitko who plays our witch we saved our we, we saved our savings for like a, a full year getting ready to make this film. It's entirely wow. a passion project. There was no help or resources, but we did have a crew of five, and that includes me and my two actors. But we had a, a camera guy and we had sound. It was a little bit bigger than the usual production, and we shot on location entirely in Southwest Minnesota for an entire month last September. It was the best time of my life. We had so much fun an entire small town to run rampant in and do whatever we pretty much liked. 
and they were incredibly welcome and excited that we were there. And David Selby shows up for his week of filming and everybody started wrecking. Oh my God, Quentin is in round Lake. Oh my God. (laughs) You know, it was a thing. It's based on, uh, should I just like keep talking or well, you would know better than I, like, how would you want to pitch it to somebody? To, because I mean, you lived with this thing for how long and how, how would you describe it to somebody? Well, it's based on a real life folk legend from Minnesota, the witch of Loon Lake, Mary Jane. Um, there's a cemetery, Loon Lake cemetery in the Southwest quarter of Minnesota, supposedly a witch or multiple witches, depending upon which version of the story you want to listen to, is buried out there. She was executed by the town, and it took three chops before her head was finally cut off. And now if you walk across her grave or jump across, depending on which version of the story, her grave three times, she comes back for you and will kill you in an unnatural manner in three days' time. And so my best friend, uh, Nathan Wilson, he and I have been working together for since God. Uh, he's grown up with this story. He grew up he, 10 minutes away from the cemetery. So this has always been like this passion project for him. And since I've known him, hey, you know, there's a cemetery that's haunted. We should make a movie about it. And then we finally did. <laughs> so we, it's a folk horror piece, a modern day folk horror piece, I should say. And we started working on it. Late 2017, we were writing it, and then we shot it in 2018 and made it entirely ourselves. And it's now, you can watch it on Amazon Prime. You can stream it. You can also rent it on 2B TV if you have that, or Google Play, or you can also rent it on YouTube. And we're hopefully having a, a Blu-ray coming out end of January or early February with some cool special features. Sign me up for that. I'm I'm on board for that. Yeah. So some of the things that I really liked about Loon Lake, the incorporation of this this urban legend, this folk horror that mm-hmm. I didn't realize was that. I, I just thought it was a really cool story you came up with, and it felt like it should be some sort of folklore, but apparently it is. Uh, the way you incorporated is, that, yeah. especially in the beginning, uh, the way you're able to transition from that to what's going on with Nathan Wilson's character and everything going on that way. Uh, I did like that quite a bit. There are some gruesome moments here that I was not expecting, especially having seen some of your previous work and knowing what some of your influences were. I was like, okay, you know, and then, Oh my God, they just did that. And I mean, that's good. I mean, it's a good thing. It, It took me out of my comfort zone right off the bat and then left me on edge the entire time which I yeah. also really enjoyed. I thought Nathan Wilson, who also co-wrote the film with you, didn't he? He did. Yes, he did. And I thought he was fantastic throughout the entire piece. I love that it feels more expansive than anything of yours that I've seen before. You and Thank I, when you. we first started talking online, I mentioned having seen uh, you know, the last case of... <laughs> August T. Harrison. Right. And I told you I really liked it. And you're like, well, talk about a movie made on no money. It's like, dude, it doesn't matter. I really enjoyed it. But yeah, it does have a very small location oh, yeah. uh, list, obviously, because it is a low budget film. You're shooting in your garage with people. No that budget. sort of thing. Yeah. I totally get it. This one, despite whatever your budget was, it feels more expansive. It, it's outside. You've got... Mm-hmm great locations. You said you're shooting on locations, which is what Dan Curtis said he did on Burnt Offerings. He shot the entire thing on location. And it feels yeah. like it. It shows. Yeah. Everything's on the screen. It gives you instant production value. It's a tangible world. Yeah. It's a tangible world. Yeah. It gives you this production value that every other element of the film then lives up to. We want it to be entirely 
authentic to to the legends and the history and that's that is the cemetery where Mary Jane is buried that is the town I mean everything is authentic to the mythology of the witch of loon lake we were very specific about that and you you couldn't make that you couldn't make this movie out here in, in LA it's just not appropriate you know um, we needed the re- the real Minnesota flavor and the guys in the bar and, and just that atmosphere. I mean, look at those landscapes that when we got, I, I'm going to now really sound ignorant. I had never been across the country. So this was my first time making a film in another state. We drove across from Los Angeles to Minnesota with a U-Haul filled with all sorts of violent <laughs> props that I won't spoil <laughs> on our podcast, but I see, I'm sure that you know what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. <laughs> And camera equipment and all these things. So we drove across country to Minnesota. That was an experience for me. I, uh, me, my, uh, myself, Nate, and uh, Kelly. And then we get there, and, and you have these, these great farmland landscapes. And and I'd always wanted to to make a folk horror film and, and to really get into the Witchfinder General Blood on Satan's Claw, you know, haunted landscape filmmaking style yeah, and I could do that with uh, this film and, and that was really exciting and using the woods and using cornfields which are incredibly freaky on their own and you can easily get lost in them and, and using this old sort of vacant town you know why not have a ghost town and that, that actually is how Round Lake really is it's kind of empty and deserted and that's Nate's hometown so we just used everything that was there at our immediate fingertips and used it in the most creative ways possible to, to not dispel how little, how non-existent our budget was. And, and as I said, everybody was so excited. I mean, this is something that people have grown up with in this multiple generations. This goes back years, this, this story, Megadeth, this band Megadeth, if you're familiar with them, they did a song about uh, this story called Mary Jane, because uh, one of the guys is from the area. Everybody there had grown up with this thing, so they were all so willing to come and help us and be 1880s extras in townspeople and, and open up their restaurants and open up their houses to us. And you're making a movie about our community. This is, no one has ever done this before. No one ever will, you know, like this is unprecedented. And that was really wonderful. You never get that in Los Angeles because this is an industry town. And also you were, we were, I realized we were spotlighting a group of people that, as I said, nobody would have ever cared. And now this little piece of folklore history, which is quite expansive, I've, we've gotten so many messages from people in Illinois and um, Iowa, South Dakota, like all over the place that have gone out to the cemetery and that park and have, are familiar with the, the legend of Mary Jane. So many people have messaged us and they said, thank you for, for doing this film. You literally filled a void in our lives. We've been waiting our lives, our whole lives to see this. We never thought this would ever be a thing and now we can watch it like like me with dark shadows it's a bedtime story i'm watching come to life this thing that they've all grown up with and have told ghost stories to from their parents telling them ghost stories to them telling their grandkids ghost stories about mary jane it's now a film that we made and that's kind of rewarding to to know that uh, you know as a filmmaker it's pretty special i think it's something that does have uh, staying power it is something that i am going to watch again (laughs) <laughs> you know, and if it is coming out on Blu-ray, I sign me up. Like, cause I wasn't kidding. I'd like to add this to my collection oh, yeah. permanently as physical media, you know, cause it really does <laughs> yeah, feel exactly. 
man, it's it's going to stick with me for a little bit. I've been really getting into folk horror lately anyway with uh, Blood of Satan's Claw, uh, The Wicker Man, of course. Uh, my wife and I uh-huh. saw Midsummer and we fell in love with it. And this does have that flavor as well. Yeah. So spot on, man. Thank you, man. Um, Thank you. I mean, we, we worked hard. It was, our saying was we did not drive 18,000 miles to have this movie compromise. <laughs> We're going <laughs> to make this the best it can be. So, and we, we tried, I mean, it was, it was all entirely a passion project. And I, I mean, even David and I mean, Catherine, she's obviously, like I said, she's family and stuff, but like David, you know, he's so committed. He's, he's up with us till like four o'clock in the morning, laughing hysterically about stupid things. And then, We'd get up at eight o'clock in the morning. We'd go have another, you know, fourteen-hour full day, and then be up all night talking and and stuff. And it was just like this incredibly intimate, collaborative, electric atmosphere. And and we're just, you know, just going every single day for sixteen days. And Minnesota, um, it it really was like the best filmmaking experience. And I would kill to do it again in a heartbeat and i wouldn't change a thing because it was just great well congratulations on the success that you're having with it right now i think listeners are going to really enjoy it and please keep me posted about a blu-ray release because i'll make sure listeners know about that as well definitely thank you man so this movie's available definitely will you mentioned a few places you can see it but a handful of your other movies are also available through places like alpha video oldies.com so you can check out some of your previous work there as well like uh, the last case of august t harrison you can get there the nighttime winds you can get there as well Uh, like i said i've picked up a handful of your work through them and have them in my collection as well so i'll make sure there are links to everything that you can get right now on the website in the show notes awesome man thank you i'm I'm glad that you've been collecting and following my work i mean it's nice to you know sometimes we sit and talk about like these things that we're doing you know, it's rewarding when someone like you says, Hey, I, I bought that movie. You made that. That's so, you know, like, thank you. Sure. No, I, I mean a lot as a, as a creative person trying, 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 trying with no money. Totally, totally get it. Totally get it. Uh, <laughs> is it too soon to talk about what might be coming up next? Uh, do you have anything in the works people might be interested in? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what do you got? Uh-huh, yeah. We've got something really cool. Okay. We've got something really cool. I'm going to, I'm just going to say we're going back to Lovecraft country uh, or Lovecraft land. Um, The last case of August T. Harrison was a a Lovecraftian film noir. And um, I read the Dunwich horror when I was 11. And that was my first ever Lovecraft thing. It changed my life. I, you know, as it has all these horror things, but we're going to make a Lovecraft film, an adaptation of a story. And it's something that I've been working on for many, many years. And fingers crossed we can pull it off. Okay. And there will be some other familiar Dark Shadows faces in there probably. So, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I'm sorry, I can't say more. No, but- no, I understand totally. I don't want to, you know, jeopardize anything. Just please keep me posted is all I have to say. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I'd love to come back on and rattle on more about it oh, you, when it's time. Yeah, especially if it's got a Lovecraft connection. I, I can't shut up about <laughs> Lovecraft. Well, and I'm out here in the Portland, Oregon area, you know, home of the Lovecraft Film Festival. So, yeah, yeah, we'll talk about right. it. We'll talk about it for sure. Excellent. All right, well, where can people follow up with you and follow your work? I, I see you've got a YouTube channel. Is that right? Yeah, I have a YouTube. Probably the best home base to start with is my website, okay. hollandsworthproductions.com. H-O-L-L-I-N-S-W-O-R-T-H, Hollinsworth, 
not Hollingsworth with a G, which is what most people usually do. Okay. Uh, Hollingsworth <laughs> Productions is my production company that I founded when I was seven. Um, <laughs> when, I, when I was seven, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, I know. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, sorry, that got me off track for a second. Sorry. Um, uh, and Hollandsworth Productions is also the name of my YouTube channel, uh, where you can find several of my short films. You mentioned one that I'm very proud of. It's very dear to my heart. Detective Adam Sarah, the Detective Adam Sarah Chronicles. I came up with him when I was in high school. Uh, it's a comic book thriller, fantasy, film noir thing series <laughs> can't even describe it myself because it's so crazy you can watch those there you can watch my um some of my episodes of my um anthology series that are fantastic on my youtube channel you can follow me on instagram ansel farage you can facebook friend me you can follow my facebook Hollands with productions and that's probably another really good spot to be up-to-date news um on projects either coming to dvd or coming out or falling apart or whatever is happening. And that's the extent of my social media presence. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll make sure there again, there will be links in the show notes to all of this. I'll make sure people can follow along with what you've got going on and can be up to date and in the loop with what you are producing these days. Excellent. Thank you. And then you can always, you know, check out Loon Lake on Amazon prime and TV TV. And I also have this, we're, we're monster kids and this is a horror show, but I went off genre and I made a love story. So you can watch my non-genre love story called Will and Liz, also on Amazon Prime for when you're really sad and lonely, and I know that most monster kids probably are, you can watch that. And um, <laughs> maybe feel better or probably not, but that's love. Yes, thank you, Derek, for having yeah, me on Yeah, no, that's, I, that I sounds that great. Steamrolled over your question. Absolutely not. No, this <laughs> format of the show, it's a conversation. You know, you get a couple of guys talking about their favorite monster movies and it goes all over the map and I love it. Yeah. And so, then horror Island later. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so I'll be checking that out here in the near future. You know, I don't think I've talked about horror Island on the show in the future or in the past either. So, you know, maybe next year sometime we'll have me on and we'll talk about George Wagner and I can go on about Turhan Bay. And I, as I said, I'm a fount of useless information. <laughs> I made my father proud. <laughs> Sounds good, man. Best of luck to you. And, and uh, in case I don't talk to you beforehand, happy holidays, man. You too, man. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a lot of fun. I look forward to the next time. I know Ansel mentioned a number of different places you can find him online. HollandsworthProductions.com, the YouTube channel, the Facebook, all of that. I'll make sure there are links in the show notes over at MonsterKidRadio.net so that you can follow up with him and I highly recommend Loon Lake. You know, one thing we didn't talk about, which is kind of surprising, especially since he was the person to bring up film scores before I did this time around, the music in Loon Lake is by Bill Wandel, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's also really good. He had been doing music with Ansel for some of his previous productions as well, if you check his credits. And I really think Loon Lake is some of the best music, at least that I've heard so far, that he's produced. So, if nothing else, check out the movie for the soundtrack. As soon as Loon Lake hits Blu-ray, I'll make sure to let you guys and gals know. But in the meantime, hop on over to Amazon or Tubi TV, that's T-U-B-I TV, to watch the movie for yourself. I'd like to know what you think. I'd also love to hear what you think about Horror Island, because, yeah, I ended up watching that again, and I dig it, man.
It's good stuff. Thanks again, Ansel, for being part of the show, and welcome to the Monster Kid Radio collection of Irregulars. Is that what I'm calling you guys and gals now? I, I don't know. Move down the darkest corridor of the inner mind. ESP is a fact. Across the comprehensions of reality. Science fiction. Is it? Beyond the shroud of your subconscious. Back. Farther back. And into the sixth sense. Come with me. Dr. Tongues, I had that shot. 7129 Northeast Fremont Street. Vintage goofiness from years gone by. Sci-fi and fantasy memorabilia. We specialize in things your mother threw away. And some she didn't. Dr. Tongues Toys. At the edge of the universe, 400 men and women are probing the immeasurable blackness of space. Their leaders are an Earthman with no fear and a stranger with no heart. Travel beyond our time and solar system into new galaxies, into worlds beyond your dreams. Star Trek, every week, in color, on the NBC television network. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank everybody for listening and being part of the Monster Kid Radio experience by just being there and knowing that there's somebody out there listening to what I have to say as I blather on and on and on. Makes me feel less like a crazy person sitting here in an empty dining room in front of a microphone, just kind of blathering on and on and on. Head over to monsterkidradio.net to find out everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio. Between episodes, our contact information is over there. Monsterkidradio at gmail.com is our email address. And we do have a voicemail line set up at 503-479-5MKR. That's 503-479-5657. And guess what? 449 episodes in. And that was the first time I was actually able to remember the 479 part without having to look it up. You know, took long enough. So if you have anything that you'd like to share with Monster Kid Radio, holiday greetings, plans for anything Monster Kid specific in your neck of the woods, anything like that, or just comment on anything that we've talked about here on the show, I'd love to hear from you. We also have links to our YouTube channel, our Facebook page, our Facebook group, and our Twitter. And there is that section in the show notes where I've included a bunch of buttons, a bunch of links that'll take you to Amazon. We are an Amazon affiliate. And every time you purchase something using one of these Amazon links from Monster Kid Radio's website, I get a little bit back. I'm not sure it's a lot, but every little bit helps, especially this time of year. And since it is this time of year, if you're going to do any shopping on Amazon for people, please consider using the Monster Kid Radio links. I'll make sure there are links to everything that Ansel's up to. I'll make sure there's links to everything that we've talked about here on the show, the various Dark Shadows books, and even my own book, my Supernatural Selections book. There's a link for that as well. If you buy it through that link, not only do I get the money, the commission from the book sale, but then the affiliate kickback as well. And just because it's mighty pretty. That Godzilla Blu-ray set that recently came out from Criterion. Yeah, there's a button for you to punch and buy your own copy from Amazon as well. And yeah, like I said, please consider using these links. It helps out the show. We also have a Tee Public shop and a Zazzle shop. We have various items of Monster Kid Radio merchandise available online for you. And watch Tee Public because they seem like they're doing sales like every other day where they sell t-shirts for like $13. So pay attention to that and pick up a Monster Kid Radio t-shirt or two. 
Also over on Zazzle, I just posted a puzzle. Yeah, you can do puzzles on Zazzle. And this puzzle, well, it has to do with Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Link in the show notes. All right, let's talk about what's coming up next week. We cannot have a month celebrating Dan Curtis without talking about Dark Shadows. And next time, we're going to be talking about the film Night of Dark Shadows with Dominique Lamsey's. Come back to Collinwood, that house of dark shadows where life and death go on as usual. Come with us, Angelique Collins. A witch is hanged in the garden. Prepare yourself for eternity, witch. For your earthly remains will hang here until your spirit returns to the pits of darkness. Let the devil take his own! Dust to dust, ashes to ashes, Angelique Collins has departed this life. She'll be back. Funny thing about this place, I keep imagining things. A bodiless spirit consummates a 200-year-old love affair. He came from the house on the hill. She came from the grave. Death kept their love alive. From the makers of House of Dark Shadows, Night of Dark Shadows... Dominique's an old friend of the show, an old friend of mine, and she has a pretty unique take on Night of Dark Shadows that I really enjoyed. And I can't wait to share that conversation with you guys and gals back here in six-ish, seven-ish days. Between now and then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories is copyright Jerry Green, 2019. And the song Hornet's Nest, well, that belongs to the band White Cactus. You can find it on their album High Tide at Meat Cove over at whitecactus.bandcamp.com. Dot com. You can pick up their entire digital album for $8. There's nine songs on that. That's less than a buck a song. It's worth it. Go check it out. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name's Tarek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. <laughs>